But Matt is in Africa today and uh, supposed to head back tomorrow. Is that right, Valerie? Tomorrow. Heads back tomorrow. And you said, you said Zach is blazing trails and all I can imagine is him like Rambo just going through and cutting up. I don't think that's right, but I'm not going to let my brain think anything else. That just sounds way cooler. But if you will, in front of you, in the pew in front of you, there is a Bible. It's the black book. You probably have a black book and a burgundy book. But I want you to pick up a Bible and hold it in your hands. If you don't have one in front of you or if, if you didn't bring one with you, you can use a phone. But I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Now, if you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 859. But I want you to hold the text and I want you to see something with us. Today in just a few minutes. So while you're turning there, I want to kind of let you in on a little part of maybe my life that maybe will give us some insight into the text today. So I have three little kids that are five and under. So our house is pretty chaotic, if you can imagine that. But one of our children, our daughter Erica, um, we adopted her from Colombia about two years ago now. Now, the adoption world is full of very specific jargon that if you don't know the world, you're not going to know anything of what they're talking about. But probably the biggest word in the adoption community is going to be attachment. Okay, now you're a pretty smart people group, and so you probably can figure this out. But it's, but it's the idea of how the child will attach to the parents that they, there's new parents, right? And so for a normal child, a child who's raised by their biological parents, typically they're born and almost immediately they're put on their mother's chest or you have, you have skin to skin time and they're building those attachment bonds and, and they feed from the mother and they look at the mother and they hear the mother coo back at them and they're, they're learning and they're learning that this is someone I can trust, right? But often in the adoption world, these kids don't have that for whatever reason, whether they've been neglected or abandoned or malnourished or just not very well taken care of. Attachment doesn't happen. And so whoever is in that parental spot, they've built these kind of neural pathways that they place a boundary there. So you have a couple different types of attachment, but, but often with adopted kids, it's just kind of disorganized attachment. I don't think I can trust you because I've not been able to trust the person in this spot before. Now see, us on the outside, we can look at that and we can say, that's a false dilemma you're placing yourself in, right? Just because you couldn't trust this person doesn't mean you won't be able to trust the next person, right? That's really a false dilemma, but their brain is telling them this is the truth. I can't really believe this person. I can't trust this person. And, and that's all what attachment is, is. Am I going to be able to rely on you? Are you going to give me food? Are you going to give me safety? Are you going to potentially hurt me? And so this is a lot of what attachment is, but it's when it's between a child and a parent, it often makes the parent feel like they're questioning. Maybe they're, they're are you really my parent? Do you really, are you going to love me? Or, or the child's going to say, am I really your son or your daughter? And, and we're going to see in the text today, I think that Satan is going to love for nothing else than for Jesus 
to begin to have some attachment issues with his father. Now, it's a false dilemma, but he's trying to place this in the brain of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, if you're open to Luke chapter 4, I want you to really quickly thumb up a few verses. So we'll be in Luke 4 for our text today, but this is why I wanted you to look at it. So thumb up to chapter 3, verse 22. So I want to kind of set the stage for us today. So 3.22 is going to be at the end of Jesus' baptism. This is going to be the highest point of Jesus' ministry. He is kind of being anointed in this time because in 3.22 it says this, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Here's what it said. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so the father in this moment is telling his son, you are my son. Wonderful. Right? This is going to be a very high point for Jesus. He's going to be really filled at this time. Okay, and then Luke chooses to do something, what I think would be a really bizarre spot to put this. Right? If we know Matthew's gospel, Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus right Smack at the beginning. He's going to make us a bridge from the Old Testament. But Luke chooses to place the genealogy of Jesus right in the middle of a couple stories. It's really bizarre, but I think he's got a point that he's trying to get at here. So if you'll go to the very bottom of Luke chapter 3, because this is another weird thing he does. He kind of inverts the genealogy. Whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down to Jesus... Luke is going to start with Jesus and work his way backwards so that in verse 38, the last eight words of chapter 3, right before we get into our text for the day, so do a little bit of counting, count the last eight words of chapter 3, verse 38. We're all going to say them together because it's going to set the groundwork for everything we're doing today. You have your eight I'll start us so that way you don't say something wrong. If you start to say something different than I'm saying, you've counted wrong. It says this, the son of Adam, the son of God. So get this in your mind today. The son of Adam, the son of God. This is going to set our entire groundwork for the, for the text that we're going to be in today. So let's read that text. Now, I told you, Satan's going to try to place Jesus in a false dilemma. The son of Jesus, and he's going to place a little word in there, or the son of God. We know full well that Jesus is both, right? He's born of a woman and he is fully divine. He's fully human and fully divine. We know this. This is the beautiful uh, theological concept of what's called the hypostatic union. Jesus is both human and divine, fully. But Satan's going to place an or in there. and He's really going to try to get at Jesus all through this. But like I said, it's a false dilemma. It's not a real problem. And thankfully, we serve an infinitely wise God who realizes that. But let me read the text for us. Chapter 4, we'll read the first 13 verses. Let me read for us. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. 
and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, our, our text is going to have three really clear acts today. right? We're going to move from temptation to temptation very seamlessly. And so it's going to make a lot of logical sense, so hopefully you'll, we can follow right along. But I, I want us to go a little bit before those temptations in verses 1 and 2 and see kind of where Jesus is headed. Now, because Luke stuck that genealogy, it's often maybe difficult for us to see that Jesus is actually heading up to the wilderness immediately after his baptism. This is the idea we get from the same account in Matthew 4. He is baptized and immediately is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now that's a wonderful kind of double mention of the Spirit in this text in verse 1, right? He is both led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he is full of the Spirit, right? We just saw the full of the Spirit. The dove descends on him and he is full of the Spirit, but he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, before you begin thinking he is being led into temptation by God or by the Spirit, I want to remind us of James 1. It says, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So it is not the Lord who is leading Jesus into temptation. It is the Lord who is leading Jesus into a time of fasting or a time of testing. See, this is what is going on here. The Spirit has led him into testing or discipline. And fasting is a wonderful time to show dedication to the Lord. But we must know this truth that what the Lord will use for testing, Satan will often use for tempting. See, we make a difference in English, but in the Greek they are the same word. And so we've, we've split these hairs, but what the devil, I'm sorry, what the Lord will use for testing Satan will often use for tempting. And Jesus has finished his fast when the devil shows up. So let's remind ourselves of some things. He is full of the Spirit and then finishes a 40-day fast. If you have fasted for any time, you know if I was already full of the Spirit at the start, man, I am bubbling over with the Spirit at the end, right? 
So Jesus is at a spiritual high at this moment. But the devil comes into work because he is not only the deceiver, but he is deceived. See, he sees a hungry son of Adam. And he's going to try to get in here when Jesus is weak. The tempter is a weaselly guy who is going to try to take advantage of Jesus when he seems to be at his weakest. He finds himself hungry, but also spiritually full. Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Spurgeon has a wonderful quote that says, No sooner was he anointed at his baptism than that he will be assailed by the devil. On a spiritual high, trying, the devil, trying his hardest to bring him down. But let's look at this. Let's look at these temptations one by one to see what's actually going on. To see if there's something behind the scenes that's working here. Go to verse 3 of chapter 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan's going to say, Hey, I, I know you're hungry. I've tempted a hungry man before. I've interacted with this before. I know hungry people. I, I'm going to go for a round two. You know what, Jesus, why don't you take these rocks and turn them into bread? You, if, you're, if you really are the Son of God, you've you got to be able to do some cool stuff, right? Just take these rocks and turn them into bread. Your fast is over. It's okay for you to eat them. You, you can eat now. You're fine. You know what, Jesus? Just treat yourself a little bit. Just serve yourself For once, if you really are the Son of God, take these rocks in the midst of this desolate place and turn them into bread. If you really are the Son of God, just treat yourself. I'm not going to stop there because we know this passage isn't just about Jesus, right? We know that the devil doesn't just interact with Jesus. We know that the devil and his demons are real. We know this, right? We know that you and I are tempted daily by spiritual forces who are going to try to bring us down. So I want to make this a personal thing. We're able to look at Jesus as an example and see that potentially we'll find ourselves in this spot. And brothers and sisters, we find ourselves here a lot. See, the tempter wants to come at us and say, no, 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 don't, don't serve other people. Serve yourself. Don't worry about other people. You deserve this. Listen, I got the, two of the weirdest places for me to tell me I deserve something this week. One, I opened the fridge and for some reason there was chocolate almond milk in there. I'm not drinking it. But on the side of the chocolate almond milk, it said, you deserve this. I don't think anybody deserves that. (laughs) And then I got an email from somebody telling me how to consolidate all my debt. And it said, you deserve this. What did I do to deserve this? I got myself into debt, I guess. I don't know. But what a weird concept. And you're told this all the time, right? You deserve this thing. 
new clothes, a new house, a new car. You deserve to spend your time the way you want to spend your time. You deserve to spend your money the way you want to spend your money. You deserve to worship however you want to. You deserve to fulfill yourselves sexually however you want to. You deserve to fill yourself with food however you want to. You deserve to seek whatever financial gain. How You deserve this. Just serve yourself. We are told this all the time. And we can learn a little something from Jesus. He turns to the book of Deuteronomy in his head. And he said, man does not live by bread alone. Now see, this is what he tells the devil in that moment. But he's going to tell us a lot more later on. He's going to tell us in Mark 10 that the Son of God, uh, so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he's going to tell us um, through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus actually has humbled himself and taken on the form of a man so that he can serve the Father. See, Jesus never once uses his divinity or his miraculous powers to serve himself. He never performs these miracles just to treat himself. This would have been a once and only thing. See, Satan thought this would work. I've mentioned this. It worked on the last guy. Right? We can see parallels between this and Adam. And not only did it work on Adam and Eve, it has worked on every human he's come in contact with yet. This is the first guy it's not worked on. See, he remembers back with Adam and Eve, and he, he remembers kind of weaseling up, kind of seething up to Eve and saying, No, you deserve this apple. He's not really going to do what he said. See, if you eat this, you, you, deserve, you'll, you will have all the not you know what you will be like god and you deserve it you deserve it just go ahead and do it just treat yourself a little bit see he knows it has worked before he said you'll be better for it you'll be full you'll be relieved you'll be satisfied and so his first temptation to jesus was to say why don't you serve yourself But Jesus wins. Jesus won. Satan, zero. Jesus is better than Adam. So Satan says, fine, cool. I'll go on to my next trick. I I got a couple more up my sleeve. I've been at this a pretty long time. I've had to do a couple different temptations. That one works on everybody, but okay, cool. We'll we'll go to another one. So he goes on into verse 5, and it says this. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Satan kind of comes at him and he says, you know what? I have a lot of powerful things at my disposal. You know, let me show you my powerful things. It's almost as if he goes and opens this door and shows Jesus 
all of these kingdoms. And so he says, he shows him all of the kingdoms in a moment. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. Do you see? Does he see all the flags? Does he see all the crowns? Does he see uh, America? Does he see Rome? Does he see whoever's coming up next? Well, I'm not sure. But he shows Jesus all of these kingdoms and he says, they're mine. I can give them to you. You know, you want them? I'll give them to you. Oh, but you got to bow down. Let's not really think about that part too much. But if you want them, I can give them to you. But you have to bow down. Now, some of y'all may be looking at this and asking yourself, does Satan really have the power to do that? That's when he gets you with temptation. Can he, what, can he really give me that? Because if I know anything about the devil, he's not good about coming through on his promises. That's not what he's interested in. So when he's already got you thinking about, well, can he really do that? Maybe he can. You're, you're pretty much gone at that point. So, so Jesus looks at this and he says, what are you trying to get at here? He's, what's, what's, what really are you trying to accomplish? Because in the first one, see, remember that he said, if you are the son of God, do this. But we don't see that in this one, Right? We don't see Satan say, well, if you really are the son of God, I'll open this door and I'll, I'll show you all the kingdoms. And if you'll just bow down at my feet and worship me, then we'll be good. We don't see Satan calling in to question his sonship of God because that would be ridiculous. Satan knows I can't even bring up the fact that he is the son of God if I'm about to ask him to get down at my feet. I've got to put that so far away from his mind. And how do I do it? I show him the thing that sons of Adam seem to love the most. Power. Earthly power. Political power. See, he's done this one before too. Right? We, we look back and we see kind of son of God, Adam, and we see the second children of God, Israel. And we see that Satan has used this exact tactic on Israel before. See, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, they're down below making golden calves and worshiping them. This is literally falling at the feet of satanic idols. But not only there, we see in the book of Judges that they say, you know, we just want to be like the other nations. We, wanna, we want kingdoms. We want power. We want to be like these other nations and have a king. And then you see Solomon who takes on hundreds of, of wives and concubines. Why? To get power in these other political realms. And when he does that, what's he do? He invites their gods into Israel. So we see this play out over and over again for the nation of Israel. They've fallen for this trick of the devil. They've fallen at his feet and they have groveled over themselves to get there, they will do anything possible to get this power. And brothers and sisters, so have you and I. Just think of the little bits of power that we've been introduced to in our lives and how we seem to just froth at the mouth to get, I'll do anything to get some power in my house, some power at work, some power politically. How often do we fall over ourselves, forget our morals, forget our standards, forget anything we are when we get a glimpse of that power? 
and I will fall at anybody's feet. And guess what? Anybody who's not Jesus, anybody's feet you're falling at who's not Jesus is the devil. Let me tell you that. Any of these places that you're worshiping, if it's not Jesus, it is demonic. I promise you. I promise you. Don't seek after this power. The earthly power is from Satan himself. This text couldn't be any clearer. And so we cannot make ourselves worshipers of power. And so Jesus is going to respond to him. He's going to respond this time out of Deuteronomy 6. And he's going to say, God is the only one I'm going to serve. So Satan takes his defeat and moves on. He says, I've got one more trick. I know you're not Adam. I know you're not Israel. I can see that now. We try one I've not tried with either of them. This is a new one. We try a new one on you this time, Jesus. So let's move to verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So Satan takes Jesus and he puts him up at the top of the temple. would have been about 450 feet up at the top of the temple. And he's, ooh, they're up on the edge. And I'm sure their knees are shaking like some of your knees shake when Matt gets this close up here sometimes. And their knees are shaking, I'm sure, because it's high up there. And, and Satan says, throw yourself down. And in fact, Jesus, I've seen you really like to quote Scripture back at me. Well, let me give you some. You've got angels at your command to guard you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up so that you won't strike a foot. Throw yourself down. He'll send the angels and he'll take care of it. It's right here in the Word. I'm just telling you what the Word says. So, he's in a spot again, right? If you really are the Son of God, prove it. If you really are the Son of God, he'll take care of you. But Jesus recognizes what's going on, right? Satan hasn't, some people would like to say he misquotes Scripture. He, he quotes this perfectly. What he's done is he's taken Scripture out of context, and he has Place Jesus in a spot where he would need to artificially create a scenario for God that God has never once promised him about. He's making Jesus try to strong arm God into this really small box that he has placed for him. Now, I told you, he hasn't done this one before. He didn't do this one on Adam. He didn't do this one on Israel. We actually get our clue for when he's going to do this one again in verse 13. It says when Satan leaves him, he's going to, what, look for an opportune time and come right back at him. There's an opportune time when Jesus looks real weak. Right? When he's in the garden. And now we don't see a, a biblical 
record of Satan being there, but we almost hear it in Jesus' voice, right? If, if you can let this cup pass from me. We can almost hear Satan whispering that in his ear. He doesn't really want you to die. He can't really want this for his son. If you really are the son of God, this can't really be his plan. Just ask him if you'll let the cup pass. This can't really be what he has for you. Right? And we, we can almost see Satan doing the same when Jesus is up on the cross. He says, just throw yourself down from here. He can't really want you to suffer like this. Right? If you really are the son of God, he can't really want this for you, right? Thankfully, we serve a God who has achieved and overcome that. But brothers and sisters, you and I are inundated with this. Over and over, I have been shocked at how pervasive the prosperity gospel has become in our country, in our region, and, and sometimes even from what I hear from people in our church, with what they say, brothers and sisters, the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, what is happening in this text right here is a lie from the pit of hell. It, it really is, I promise you. What you're doing in that moment, if you don't know, they'll say, listen, the Lord can't really want you to be poor. The Lord can't really want you to be without a job or to have cancer or to be suffering. The Lord can't really want that for you. You must not be praying hard enough. You must not have enough faith. You must not be giving me enough money. Or they'll say, you're going to see a victory. You're going to see an earthly victory on this. You just have to trust more. You have to pray more. You have to have more faith. That is placing God in an artificial box that he was never meant to be placed in. If we think this side of eternity is not meant to have suffering, we don't need to look any farther than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross. We are never promised to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Never once in this book are you promised that. In fact, often we are promised exactly the opposite. If you really are a child of God, suffering is coming your way. If you really are the a child of God, you will be questioned at every turn. If you really are a child of God, hard times are probably coming for you. Brothers and sisters, do not fall for the idea that God has called us into this cush life. God has called us into self-sacrifice. God has called us into serving others. And God has called us into seeking His glory. We cannot live as if we're expecting God to do things that He has never promised to us. And so that's what Jesus says. Don't put God to the test when He never promised you any of this. Don't put God to the test when he has never promised you any of this. Now, we see that Jesus overcomes these temptations the same way every time. He quotes scripture right back at them. And this is good and wonderful. I love the word of God. I love it. Nothing gets me excited more than getting to teach the word of God to people. 
I believe that you should hide the word of God in your heart. I think this is a good and wonderful thing. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. It slices and dices. It challenges my flesh. It equips my heart. And it will wound the enemy. However, you cannot defeat Satan on your own. You cannot know more scripture than Satan. He's been at this a lot longer than you. You can't outsword drill your way out of this. But here's the secret. We know that the word of God is not something to know. We know that the word of God is someone to know. Right? The word of God, as we learned from John Word that John 1, that in the beginning was the word. This is what you're hiding in your hearts, brothers and sisters. You have the spirit of that word in your heart. The spirit of God lives inside you. You can trust the guy who is the word of God. And he's not only the word of God, but he is the son of God. The son of God who will miraculously, in a few chapters, take that bread and feed 5,000 people. He is the son of God who will be crowned king over all those kingdoms in just a few chapters. But he'll have to go through the cross to get the crown. He is the son of God who, at the end of this passage, angels are there attending to him. You see, brothers and sisters, everything that Satan promised to him is going to happen. He doesn't need Satan for any of it. This is the wonderful part about this. It's so full. And we can get in on this, right? We see in Hebrews 4 that we do not have a high priest who can only sympathize with our weaknesses and with our temptations, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. He has already overcome sin and temptation. So how does this help us? We see in 1 Corinthians 10 that he is going to give us a way out of this temptation. And in Romans 13, we're going to see that that way is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we defeat temptation. This is the word that we're hiding in our hearts. That Jesus is the word of God, the son of God, who has defeated sin and death. That he sent his spirit to dwell in us. When we fall into temptation, we are questioning that. When we fall for this, we're questioning, is he really the son of God? Do I really have the spirit? Can the, the spirit really overcome? Did, did Jesus really win the battle over the devil? Did he really conquer all of this? I love this quote from Martin Luther where essentially he says, When the devil comes to me to tempt me, he knocks on my heart. And Jesus comes to the door. And the devil says, who lives here? And Jesus said, well, Martin Luther used to, but he doesn't anymore. I do. You don't really have any say here. And this is what we get to do. We get to go to Satan when he comes at us. And we get to say, you have already been defeated. You don't live here anymore. Here, in this passage, the God-man 
passes the test that Adam and Eve failed. He succeeds in the wilderness where Israel failed. And he claims victory where you and I have all failed. He really is the Son of God come to redeem the sons of Adam. And Satan is going to get you to question the same thing he tried to get Jesus to question. He's going to ask you, are you really a child of God? And I've been in this spot millions of times. I felt the same pull from temptation that you all have. But let me tell you, there is hope. If you're a brother or sister in Christ, then there is the spirit of the living God inside you. And there is the blood of Jesus that has been shed for you. You are no longer bound to sin and temptation. You are free. Herschel York says, we don't have to defeat Satan. We just have to remind him he's already been beaten. But if you don't know this guy, if you don't know this Jesus, if you find yourself falling into temptation, if you find yourself consistently falling for the devil's traps, then let me tell you, I know a guy. A guy who serves others, who has given himself up for the world, who did not bring himself down from the cross. A man who defeated sin and death, who rose three days later, and now we spend our lives worshiping him, knowing that we will join him one day. And his name is Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that you have come and defeated sin and death. You have overcome our doubts. You have overcome our temptations and our struggles. You have accomplished victory for us on the cross. Father, I pray that when each of us is in a spot where we find ourselves weak, that we would be able to come to you relying on the Spirit and have the Spirit through us say, sin and death and the devil have been defeated. You have no power here. And Father, if there are brothers and sisters in our midst who do not know you, who do not know this power, who do not have this spirit. Father, I pray that this would be a time when your spirit would come and work in their hearts and effectuate salvation. That they would know you, they would trust in you, and they'd be filled with the same spirit, recognizing that you have overcome. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.